This is episode 29 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And today, we got a really fun one for you, because we're going to be talking about the Federal Reserve, the Fed to help everybody understand the current circumstances that we're in and kind of give you a history of how everything kind of developed and has built into the current circumstances that we are experiencing. So uh, without further delay, I'm going to open up this episode with a quote from just this past week uh, by Charlie Munger. And just so if you're listening to this in the future, we are at the end of March 2015 and the executive vice chairman of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger, uh, whose net worth is over a billion dollars and is uh, one of Warren Buffett's best friends, had this quote whenever he was addressing a crowd. And I, I got this from uh, Forbes. So this is uh, Charlie's quote. He says, this has basically never happened before in my whole life. I can't remember one and a half percent rates. It certainly surprised all the economists. It surprised the people who created the life insurance industry in Japan, who basically all went broke because they guaranteed to pay a three percent interest rate. I think everybody's been surprised by it, including all the people who are in the economics profession who kind of pretend they knew it all along. But I think practically everybody was flabbergasted. I was flabbergasted when they went low, when they went negative in Europe, talking about the interest rates in Europe. I'm really flabbergasted. How many in this room would have predicted negative interest rates in Europe? Raise your hands. And nobody raised their hands. That's exactly the way I feel. How can I be an expert in something I've never even thought about that seems so unlikely? It's new territory. I think something so strange and so important is likely to have consequences. I think it's highly likely that the people who confidently think they know the consequences, none of whom predicted this, now they know what's going to happen next. Again, the witch doctors. You ask me what's going to happen? Hell, I don't know what's going to happen. I regard it all as very weird. If interest rates go to zero and all the governments in the world start printing money like crazy and prices go down, of course I'm confused. Anybody who is intelligent, who is not confused, doesn't understand the situation very well. If you find it puzzling, your brain is working correctly. So that's Charlie Munger's quote uh, just from this past week, and he's referencing our current uh, economic conditions. So we're going to start off with that quote to kind of throw it out there. Uh, Charlie Munger, 91 years old, one of the greatest investors of all time. I mean, this guy's just phenomenal. He works with uh, Warren Buffett and has you know, helped him create Berkshire Hathaway. So that's how these guys are looking at this. They don't necessarily know what in the world's coming next. They just know that there's something coming and they have you know, no idea how it's going to uh, mature and how it's going to fall out. So, Stig, do you have any uh, comments there on the, on the start with uh, Charlie's quote before we get into the hot and heavy piece of the Fed? Uh, no, only that. I'm really looking forward to predict a lot of things in, uh, in this episode. <laughs> so everyone have a good laugh when they listen to this in the future. Oh, I know. We'll be the witch doctors for you, folks. Uh, but 
Anyway, let's go ahead and kick this thing off. So the first thing I want to talk about before we really start talking about the history of the Fed and how we got into the position that we're at, I want to talk about this difference between economic inflation versus currency inflation, because I think a lot of people get that terminology confused. A lot of people hear the word inflation and they immediately think, or at least I used to think, uh, that it was just talking about currency inflation. Whenever you hear inflation, oh, the dollar is losing value because it's being inflated because the Fed is printing more money. But that term is often used interchangeably where you hear a lot of people saying, oh, well, we got to worry about deflation right now. And the terms really get confusing. And here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it real simple for folks. So there's an economic inflation and deflation that occurs. And what that is caused by is the addition of credit into the economy. So when you look back at like the 1950s, 1960s, 70s, during that time frame, the United States was going through an enormous economic inflation where the economy was growing and booming. And this was all because of the fact that the Fed was increasing the supply of money or the credit in the system, not real dollars, but the credit in the system. And this was making the economy just go like crazy. And uh, when that's happening, you didn't necessarily see the currency inflating during that period. You actually didn't in this into the 70s and into the 80s. You did. But prior to that, it wasn't real noticeable that the currency was being inflated. And this is also because it was tied to gold back during that period. So it's really important to know, though, that the economic inflation occurred and then past 1981 and on, you had this economic deflation that was occurring where the the currency was starting to inflate. Okay, so that's there's there's a terminology gap that I think a lot of people get confused on. And so when we discuss some of the things in here, we're going to try real hard to make sure that we say economic inflation versus currency inflation and deflation whenever we're discussing these topics. So the first thing that I think people need to understand before we get into this is the idea of a money multiplier, because in my personal opinion, that's really the critical variable to all of this. Whenever you listen to Ray Dalio and some of these other folks, hopefully you've you've watched the video that Stig and I have been talking about, because we just find that to be insanely important for your own education as we go through this. But the critical variable, in, in my opinion, is this money multiplier, because that's what separates Real dollars, the ones that you find in your wallet, uh, versus credit that is created uh, through the re- through the reserve ratio and through the Federal Reserve. And so, um, what's the common term? If you were going to Google money multiplier, what that is is that's the Fed's tool that they use in order to allow banks to lend more than the dollars that they're actually sitting on. Okay, so let's use an example. Let's say that uh, Stig goes to the bank here in the U.S., which he can't because he's from Denmark, but let's just say that he can, and he deposits $10 into the bank. Uh, Whenever he makes that deposit of 10 real dollars, he's actually holding those $10 and he deposits that into the bank. The bank then takes that in, puts it into his account, and then they can lend out money based on that $10 deposit that Stig just gave them. So the amount that they can lend out is based off of the reserve ratio or also called the money multiplier. And uh, that money multiplier is adjusted by the Federal Reserve. So Ben Bernanke, who I think a lot of people know, now it's Janet Yellen, uh, Alan Greenspan, they were all the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And so they were the ones actually calling the shots saying, hey, the money multiplier is now whatever. Okay. 
So let me give you a, an idea of, of an, this example with Stig depositing $10 into the bank. If the money multiplier was 10, that means that the bank could then lend out $100, even though that they were only sitting on 10 um, on the deposit. And so you might be asking, well, where in the world are they going to get $100 if they only got 10 from Stig and there's no other money at play here? Well, they get it from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve would supply the bank with that extra money, and then they could make out that loan. So the money is really created from thin air from the Federal Reserve um, in order to do that. So as you might imagine, if the Federal Reserve changes that money multiplier down to five, okay, that contraction of the money that's available, the credit, the, the keyword is credit. And I, I think we need to distinguish between money and credit. And it's used interchangeably, and that's what causes all the confusion. So if that money multiplier changes to five, now the bank is only able to lend out $50 for every $10 that would be deposited to it. And that has a tremendous impact on the economy. And that's what I think a lot of people don't realize. They see the stock market go crazy. They you know, say Wall Street this and that. They say, oh, it's big business. But truly, at the heart of this, it's the money multiplier and the way that the Fed adjusts that money multiplier. And, and that's what's really controlling the way our economy interacts uh, from time to time. So what is really interesting is we go back in time and we look at history over the last hundred years. We can see how we arrived at the current situation that we're at. So I'm going to throw it over to Stick because I think he has a point he wants to add. You know, one thing I think is extremely interesting here is the credit thing that you're talking about, Preston, because uh, when we're talking about money, is money really credit? So if we think about money in terms of, you know, green dollar bills, I mean, that's that's one thing. Um, but and we have something like, what is it, $3 trillion printed, something like that. Uh, but in terms of credit, we actually have uh, $50 trillion. So, you know, there's a huge difference between what you might be thinking is money and then what is credit, what is basically just produced in the system. And, uh, and that's also one of the reasons why we have these cycles, because we have this credit that can just go crazy and all over the place. And that is basically what you're seeing right now. And really understanding the difference between uh, you know money that you can touch and then credit in the system. I think that's, that's probably one of the first steps you really have to pay close attention to in, uh, for this podcast episode. And so people might ask, well, if there's only $3 trillion of, of real money and there's $50 trillion of, of this credit or fake money, um, what happens is if everybody calls the bank on their loans and they make a bank run, which was commonly referred to back in the early uh, 1900s? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that the bank, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve would have to print money. Uh, they'd have to make those real. And then what you'd see is you'd see a drastic inflation. So what the Fed's banking on, and no pun intended, is that there isn't a run on those dollars and that the psychology of the overall economy takes place and just holds everything into place. And, and this is really a serious concern. And this is actually the reason why uh, the Fed was created back in uh, in early 1900s. It's because they wanted to prevent these bank runs. And we don't see them that often. Uh, we actually saw it in Greece a few years ago, but we don't see it that often in, in Western Europe and in the U.S. But it's, it's a serious concern. Uh, today, the Fed has you know a lot of other obligations, but basically the whole reason why Fed was created was to avoid these bank runs, which is extremely important to avoid for any uh, developed economy because it would completely ruin the financial system, which is the, the basis for, uh, for the economic growth for the country. 
So Stig brings up a good point about the history of how the central banks uh, came to existence today. So uh, back in 1907 in the United States, there was a really bad uh, panic. It was called the Panic of 1907. There was no central bank at the time, and there was bank runs. And this persisted. I want to say this persisted for like two years that they had a really deep recession. Whenever the United States looked around the world, they saw that Great Britain, uh, Germany, uh, all these different countries had their own central banks, and they were able to alleviate these, these constant downturns by basically using this system where they would put an influx of money into the system during the recession and it would subside it a lot faster. So during that time frame, during that 1910 to 1914 time frame in the United States is whenever the Federal Reserve came to fruition. Uh, there's a really uh, interesting book called The uh, Creature from Jekyll Island where uh, this gentleman goes and he describes this uh the, the formation of the Federal Reserve. Uh, it's a really good start, and he, he does a great job describing finance and making it interesting, unlike most finance books. Uh, and it's really interesting that he talks about one-fourth of the entire world's wealth met at this Jekyll Island in order to create the Fed uh, with the few representatives that they had from all these big, wealthy banks uh, out of New York. So kind of a really interesting story. And we'll have that book up on the show notes and if you guys are interested in reading it. So anyway, 1914 hits, and that's the World War One, and this allowed uh, Europe, Great Britain, uh, Germany specifically, to incur large amounts of debt whenever they abandoned the the uh, gold standard during this First World War. This opened the door for the U.S. to come in as a world economic power. So that was kind of the foundation of the Federal Reserve. Uh, as we as we progress in time and we look at what happened with the Federal Reserve, we could talk about the Great Depression, but we're really not going to talk about that very much uh, because by the end of the Great Depression um, in the 1940 time frame, the U.S. had actually uh, done pretty well at reducing their amount of total debt to uh, the GDP at that time. By 1940, the, the federal debt to GDP was only 50% during that time. So that's that's actually really good. When you look around the world right now, I mean, we're at, what, 330-odd percent total yeah, debt? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very high. Total debt to GDP. The federal debt to GDP, I think, is still under 100%, but still very high. So uh, when you look at that time frame coming out of the Great Depression, the, the U.S. was actually in a very good position as far as their management of debt. And... Uh, the key factor, that money multiplier that we had talked about, the money multiplier in 1940 was a four. That means for every dollar, they could lend out four, four dollars. That's where the bank stood. And what you're going to see is as this progression takes place from 1940 clear up to where we're at right now, you're going to see that money multiplier totally balloon. Uh, and at its peak in the early 1980s, when inflation was at its highest, that money multiplier was huge. It was at a 12 Okay, Uh, and that's the highest that it got over the last hundred years. And so what's really interesting is when that money multiplier is high, the credit's high. Everyone thinks there's real dollars in the system, even though there's not. Uh, And that's what's causing this economic inflation to occur. Okay, That's why you saw the U.S. just take off uh, during that period from 1940s. And and, uh, we'll briefly talk about World War Two and its impact. But. From 1940s up to 1981, you saw this economic inflation occur. So uh, what's interesting, in 1940, like we said, the federal debt to GDP was only 50%. 
But you fast forward just six years later, because of World War II, the U.S. went on an enormous spending binge, okay? And the federal debt to GDP went up to 115%. So it more than doubled in a six-year period. And what you saw, in order for the U.S. to account for that, they had to adjust this money multiplier. So like I said, 1940 money multiplier was four. So they lend out four for every one dollar. By 1946, just six years later, that money multiplier had increased to a six. So they're now lending out $6 for every $1 in there. That is a very high money uh, multiplier. But what didn't help things, in order for them, them to pay down that debt, that high debt from World War II, they kept increasing that money multiplier, increasing more credit into the system. So some of our older listeners that uh, might be from the era of the 1960s, um, they're going to remember that era as being a very amazing time when everything was uh, really kind of booming because you had all this economic inflation. And if you look at the money multiplier in the 1960s, mid-1960s, it was at an eight. So just in 20 years from 1940 to 1960, you had the money supply literally double uh, and it and it's a and it doubled because of the credit creation. It wasn't like they were adding more dollars here. They were just adding more credit into the system uh, through the Federal Reserve. So that was the reason for this economic inflation. That's why you saw things taking off during that period. And the reason that we're talking about this, you might be like, why in the world is Preston talking about the 1940s and 60s? How does that have anything to do with today? But it has everything to do with today because that economic inflation Think of currency inflation and economic inflation as being like a, a rope on a pulley. Whenever you pull on one side, the other side has to go up. And when you pull on the, the other side to go back down, it's, it just works in tandem, uh, this pulley system. So when economic inflation starts going up, okay, no one's seeing the currency inflation. But whenever you start pulling that economic inflation down, that's when the currency inflation has to start coming up. So what's really ironic is, is when we talk about this economic inflation and how it was really growing through 1960 into 1970, uh, 1971, when the money multiplier was a 10, this is when uh, President Nixon came on and he uh, said that we're coming off the gold standard right in 1971. So you saw that money multiplier keep tricking up, keep going up, keep going up. And then in 1971, that's when he came in and said, you know what? We can't even back these 10 times the the real dollars that are in the system. We can't back this up anymore. So we have to come off the gold standard because we can't actually fulfill our obligation here. So he comes off the gold standard and that's where things really got interesting. Uh, The important part, I think that a lot of people need to understand because they're probably thinking, why in the world would these, you know, leaders of that generation do this? And it really comes down to one thing. I think that the United States was was stunned so much by the Great Depression and and having you know unemployment at just epic proportions that they remembered that as they were going through this and they basically used the Federal Reserve as a tool to prevent these unemployment rates. And so throughout that entire period, especially during Johnson's administration in the mid-1960s, it was all about uh, this idea of his great society, of no one being out of work, and you saw that carry on for, for decades where they were just like, you know what, the, let's just use the Fed, you know, increase the money supply through the money multiplier. And uh, we won't have to ever have people unemployed ever again was pretty much the mindset. And unfortunately, um, that mindset over decades it has been what really created this oversupply of money 
and uh, the consequence that we're kind of facing today and how it's all shaking out. So, uh, like I said, 1971, Nixon comes off the gold standard. The money multiplier at that point in time was a 10. Now, this is where it got really bad because you had a uh, Fed chairman, Arthur Burns, uh, from 1971 to 1981. And Burns goes and he just keeps things going. He just he keeps increasing the money multiplier through the 70s and into the 80s, really doing nothing to try to stunt this oversupply of money. And you saw the money multiplier go from 10 to 12 over that 10 year period. This is also the first decade that we came off the gold standard. And what you saw was the value of the dollar go from $1 down to 45 cents uh, when compared to the gold that it used to represent. So in just a decade, you saw the value of the dollar literally get cut in half. And this is where you started seeing the currency start to just inflate. Really interesting time. And this is when you had a, a person come into the Fed for the first time that recognized, hey, this is not sustainable. We just can't keep printing money until we you know, have an epic failure. And that person was Paul Volcker. And Paul Volcker came in in 1979, and he was the Fed chairman uh, from 1979 to 1987. And he made some very hard decisions. And when during this time period, if people will remember back then, this is when inflation was just through the roof, 16%. Uh, you want to go out and buy a house. Like Those were the interest rates they were dealing with back then. It, the, and interest rates peaked in the 1981. Now, what you're going to find, and this is what's really interesting, when you go back and you look at all these charts and you see these 100-year bubbles or these 75-year bubbles, you're going to see a common theme. You're going to see that the money multiplier changed from 1940 till right now, and it looks like a big giant bubble, and the bubble peaked in 1981. And if you look at interest rates, it looks like a big giant bubble, and the bubble peaked in 1981, and then they've come back down ever since, and they've been going down ever since 1981. And if you look at GDP growth, it was a big bubble from 1940, clear up to 1981, and then back down. We're going to have these charts in the show notes so you can see exactly what I'm talking about, how the how the interest rates moved in this 100-year cycle, how the GDP moved in this 100-year cycle, how the money multiplier moved in this 100-year cycle. It's all interrelated. So when Paul Volcker came in, he made these hard decisions, and he basically started contracting the money supply, this money multiplier, and that had a shock to the system. Um, particularly by 1987, you saw the biggest stock market downturn of all time. Um, and it was a total shock to the system. This is also when Alan Greenspan came in, and this was like one of his first uh, economic emergencies that he handled. And what people got to realize is it's very easy, and this is very easy for me to say, this is another Monday morning quarterback kind of thing. Um, it's very easy to spark the economy when you have a very big interest rate lever that you can adjust uh, moving it down. So in 1987, whenever they had this big stock market crash, Alan Greenspan comes in. He, I mean, interest rates were at that 8 to 10% range. And so Alan Greenspan had a very big lever to play with as the uh, as the stock market took a big hit and the and the economy's contracting. All he has to do is lower the interest rates and it immediately sparks it back up again and he's able to control that very easily. 
So this persists, and Alan Greenspan stays there for a very long time, uh, clear up to, what was it, 2006, Alan Greenspan was in there. And what you had was he had this lever, this interest rate lever, to continue it to, uh, to adjust as each time the U.S. went through another a business cycle, if you will, he was able to adjust those interest rates and control it. But here's where it gets scary. If you look at these charts that we're going to have on the show notes, you can see how the interest rates peaked in 1981, and they've consistently been coming down at a very steady rate. And the reason that it's been doing that is because the Fed has to do that. They have to keep that interest rate lower than your GDP growth, because if they do not, that's what's going to set off a very large economic collapse if they do not try to keep those interest rates below the GDP growth. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. So, Stig, uh, do you have anything? I've, I've been talking for a long time. Well, do you have anything you want to <laughs> add for some of the stuff that I've been saying? I'm on. I was on a roll. <laughs> you are on the roll. Uh, yeah, 
I actually would like to talk about the stock market. Uh, sorry about that. I can't help talking about the stock market. But uh, what is actually extremely interesting is what you'll see happen to the stock market after 81. Um, because something that we also discussed early on the podcast, uh, not this episode though, is the interest rate impact on asset prices. And asset prices, that surely also includes the stock market. So what you would see from 81 and then 70 years, uh, 17 years later is that the stock market would increase but more than 11 fold. And, you know, this is a period of time where I think the GDP growth in, uh, in the U.S. was something like, I think it's triple or something during that period. But still you saw, Know, 11 times as high uh, a stock market. And then you can compare that uh, from the period from uh, 64 to uh, 81, where you had uh, you know, steady increasing in the interest rate. Then the stock market barely didn't, it didn't move. And I, I mean, it didn't move at all. It moved from something like 874 to 875. That's the Dow we're talking about. So clearly nothing really happened. And a lot of the reason for this is really the... Uh, like interest rate, the interest rate has an enormous impact on how the asset prices goes. And one thing, another thing I would like to comment uh, is uh, Greenspan's uh, ideology in terms of the stock market. Because one quote he's very famous for saying is that as long as the stock market uh, increases in price, this was probably be the most, or he's actually not saying probably, he's saying this is the most important factor for simulating the economy. And I know it's easy to look back at that now and as Preston said, being one one quarterback, but I think that's a very dangerous approach to have to the stock market. Just as long as price increases stocks, they would do more than anything to uh, stimulate the economy. Now, it, it might do that in the very short run, but in the long run, it's a dangerous approach to have. So as you come down off of this economic inflation Okay, the the economy was growing from the 40s clear up into the 1980s. And as as Paul Volcker started this this trend of changing that money multiplier and bringing it back down, that's whenever we started coming off this ledge. And it's been a slippery slope ever since. And what you've seen is that the prices of assets is where the money kind of started plugging itself into into the 1990s as you saw the stock market just explode. Uh, it did not help that Alan Greenspan really did nothing at the 1995-96 time frame to do something about these insane stock market values. I mean, you saw PE ratios as high as I think the average PE ratio was what like 70 or 80. It was totally insane. I mean, you're your average PE ratio is like 15, 14, somewhere around in there over a hundred year period. So for it to be at 80, a PE of 80 is literally totally nuts. And for the Fed to not be raising rates uh, through the nose at that point for over a four year period is very, uh, I don't know. I don't even have words for it, to be quite honest for you. It's very uh, upsetting. And I think that Historians, as they look back at this, are definitely going to look at a few uh, Fed chairmans and really place a lot of blame on some of their actions. And I think Alan Greenspan is probably going to be one of those people. So what you saw was that there was an asset bubble that happened in the um, 1990s time frame. And then what happened is after the 2000 crash, which was definitely inevitable, you saw those that that bubble basically shift straight into real estate. And then that bubble started growing and expanding. And then that's whenever Greenspan left in 2006, you had um, Ben Bernanke come in 
And surprisingly, Bernanke, uh, for the first two years, didn't even think that there was a housing uh, bubble at all. I mean, there was I, I saw some videos with Bernanke where uh, there was these different correspondents asking him questions about the uh, real estate bubble. And he goes, I don't I don't really necessarily see that that bubble. I mean, it's right there. Proof. Um, and what's really uh, crazy is that you have uh, Schilling, Gary Schilling. He's one of the best economic uh, professors out there. He had been calling this uh, housing bubble for an extremely long period of time. He had charts showing that it had grown like a hundredfold. And so it was really kind of uh, frustrating to see the money multiplier kind of tick up uh, from 2006 through 2008 with Ben Bernanke uh, trying to, I guess, still stimulate the economy from the 2003 crash, um, which is just crazy that the money multiplier would still be going up. But uh, that's one of the main reasons that you saw a significant shift in these housing bubbles, not to mention a lot of government policy and a bunch of other things. I mean, there's so many variables in this stuff. We're talking the really big chunks and pieces of it. So what we're going to talk about at this point, and I made a video on YouTube on this. So if you've watched this video, um, it's probably a little bit better than probably just listening to me. But and for those people that want to watch the video, we'll have it up in the show notes where I describe kind of what happened here in 2008 and to the present with uh, the way that the money multiplier changed uh, after the 2008 crash. So because there was all this credit in the system, we had a money multiplier that was uh, very high uh, leading up to the 2008 crash. And after that crash had occurred, the money multiplier was basically cut in half. Uh, And when they did that, uh, to ensure that we didn't have massive deflation at that point, uh, economic, or I'm sorry, currency deflation at that point, they had to print an enormous amount of money to make up for all that credit that was in the system. So it was basically trading one for one where they were taking credit out of the system and then they have to put real dollars behind it in order to offset it. And that's exactly what Ben Bernanke did with the quantitative easing. So now you're at a point where the money multiplier is so low that uh, you don't have a very large uh, door of credit for people to borrow money and businesses require credit in order to operate. You've got companies that got to go out and buy um, inventory. They've got to do they have to have a revolving door of credit in order to operate their business in order to pay their bills and to pay their employees and all sorts of things. So you've gotten in a position where this money multiplier is so low. Now, the thing that I find really intriguing and really interesting, and, and I see patterns, you know, when, you, when you've when you been doing it for a few years, you start to see patterns. I found it really interesting. Before 2008, right before the crash in 2008, you saw oil just go through the roof. Oil was like at $150 a barrel. Now, right now in 2015, we're seeing oil at epic lows And I find that pattern really ironic. I don't know if there's some type of correlation there, but I do find it very interesting. And I, you know, if I had to pin something to it or where my interest is for for more research, I'm interested in looking at how that reduced amount of credit in the system, how that money multiplier is shrinking to very low levels at this point, how that's impacting these, these oil companies, because they rely on a very large revolving door of credit in order to exercise their monstrous companies. So if their credit is reduced and they don't have that ability, what is an oil producer going to do? Well, they're going to produce more oil because they've got to, that, that's their inventory. If they pull more oil out of the ground and they start producing more, then they have more capital to pay their bills and to, to function. 
And so what you've seen, I think what you've seen since 2008 <clears throat> is you've seen the supply and demand of oil change drastically. And I think it's this is a hard theory. And I would really appreciate if people email me or start something on the forum to have this discussion. I think there's a potential that because this money multiplier was adjusted so significantly and you don't have that revolving door of credit available, that you see these oil companies oversupplying, even though that there's no demand for it. And that's why you're seeing the price of oil just kind of go through the floor. So that's my theory. I don't know if I'm right. Well, Stig, what do you think? You used to cover some of this stuff. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com take your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card you can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit u.s restaurants and gas stations That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think there are... uh, I definitely agree with you to some extent in terms of the uh, money multiplier. Another thing that we also need to uh, to discuss when talking about oil, uh, not really to go too much off topic, is that um, the the oil market is very different now than it was, especially in the 70s and 80s and 90s, because we don't have uh, those huge producers like the OPEC, for instance, that were controlling the supply. So as you probably uh, all know, if we have a lower supply, then we have a higher price. So right now, we don't have anyone who is uh, determining the supply. You know, everyone can just you know go out there and produce a lot of oil, and clearly that would drag down the price. Um, another thing that we're seeing, especially right now, is that we have an extremely strong dollar. And when we have a very strong dollar, 
uh, it have, has a negative correlation to the oil price because it's it's a counter foreign dollar. So you'll see that has negative correlation. And for instance, just compared to the uh, to the euro, the dollar has appreciated like 23% over the last year. So th- that is really also what you're seeing. So there's a lot of different factors, including the money multiplier that is really pushing down the oil price at the moment. Now, whether or not that oil price in equilibrium, you know, that's always really hard to say. But I think there's a lot of psychology at the moment and there's a lot of macroeconomic factors that are really pushing the oil price down at the moment. Okay, so uh, we really didn't plan on talking about oil. That just kind of came out as we were doing this. But we'll get back to the Fed. So uh, we were talking about different money multiplier levels through the years. And so when we're talking about that, the money multiplier post 2008 dropped down to uh around the three mark whenever you're talking about M2 uh, money multiplier. And you have M1, you got M2. We won't get into all the specifics of that because it gets kind of confusing. But the money multiplier that we've been talking about throughout this episode is uh, the M2 money multiplier. So after 2008, you're down below a three, which is the lowest that that money multiplier has been uh, in the last hundred years. So that's kind of an interesting thing. What what that means, who knows? I mean, again, we'll go back to the Charlie Munger quote. Who knows what that means? We just know that there's going to be some type of ramifications because of it. So that puts us in a pretty unique situation where uh, here we are, 2015. We're getting all these senses that there's something happening. We don't necessarily know what it is. We All the billionaires that we track are sitting on a, an enormous amount of cash, And we just don't really know how this is going to end. We just know that we're upon interesting times. Um, When you listen to Ray Dalio, he talks about the productivity curve and how productivity progresses at a very linear rate um, of about 2% annually. And I guess my concern is this. As we adjusted this money multiplier over this past 75-year period to very high levels, 12 times uh, the actual dollars that were ever sitting in account. What we had was GDP that grew at a very high rate through that period, uh, much higher than 2%. And so my concern, I guess I should say, is that as we artificially adjusted this money multiplier higher and we basically created GDP growth far in excess of that 2% uh, mark annually, I think we maybe put ourselves in a situation where we might have to pay that price later on down the road. Uh, I don't necessarily know if that's going to come to fruition or not, but that's kind of uh, my concern, I guess I should say. Yeah, you know, I'm. Uh, I really hate always to uh, to agree with the Preston. Um, Redelio likes to surround himself with people that uh, you know disagree with him all the time, and they just always happen to agree with Preston. Or as I like to think, so he always <laughs> likes to agree with me. <laughs> that's probably more of what it is, Stick. <laughs> okay, uh, but in any case, asset prices, at least in my opinion, are you know drastically uh, overinflated at the moment. So the 2% real GDP growth the president's talking about, when you look at that, you know, that has nothing to do with the realities that you're seeing right now when you look at the uh, the asset prices. And I just want to put in another statistic here. The stocks bought on margin is very near an all-time high. So even though you adjust for inflation, uh, currency inflation, we are looking at an almost an all-time high stocks bought on margin. So let me just give you a uh, tell you a, a very short story. I received an, an email, actually multiple emails from my broker here the last few weeks, and they want me to uh, to take on loans. They're saying that you have a very nice portfolio, so you can borrow against your portfolio down to one percent, and then you know no questions asked in terms of you know where you will place that money. Uh, I guess my broker would probably hope I would invest in more stocks. 
Um, also, there was this suggestion about uh, mortgages, take a mortgage and <laughs> then inflate the uh, housing prices here in Denmark. I mean, I haven't seen anything as crazy as this before. Well, except before the last crash when I saw something similar. So there's a lot of crazy things going on because there's so much credit in the system and there is nowhere to, uh, to put all that money. I always like to ask myself whenever I'm in, involved in a deal, am I the smart person on the end of this deal or am I the dumb person on the end of this deal? So when the bank comes knocking on your door and they're saying, hey, we really want to lend you money and it's at a lower interest rate than what you're already paying, you have to ask yourself, why do they want to do that? What is the reason? Is it because they want to have lower earnings in the future? I highly doubt that's the reason. And so you have to ask yourself, what do they know that I don't know? And I think until you answer that question, I think you need to really be, um, you know, you really got to question whether you're doing the right thing when you're presented with something that seems so obvious. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you. I guess to try to educate yourself as much as possible, learn about this as much as you can before you make any large financial decisions, whether you're going and buying a house, whether you're going and buying a commercial real estate or whatever, because I, I share your concerns, Stig. When you look at things, the, the obvious choice at this point is is real estate because interest rates are low. But I guess the concern is, is let's say you buy a house or you buy some type of commercial real estate right now, and we do go through another crash, and the symptoms are very similar to 2008 in that asset values lose a considerable amount of money. And then you're faced with the Fed not having any tools at their disposal to spark the economy again, except for drastic inflation of the currency. So I share your concern. I don't really know what else to say um, other than I think we're I, I agree with Charlie Munger. We're upon interesting times here and, and I really can't tell people one way or the other. But I do think that I think that if you are a person giving a loan to somebody else, you better really understand how they are going to pay you back in the future. I think that's something that people really need to fully understand. So if you're buying bonds, you are lending money. That's what you are doing. You are lending money. So you better have a firm understanding of how that person's going to pay your coupons and your principal back whenever that bond matures. Uh, and you might want to look at the, the duration of it or the term of it. So um, go ahead, Stig. Yeah, so that was really a great point, uh, Preston, about uh, being concerned because I think that if you look at people's balance sheet, it might look like they have a lot of equity. So it might look like they have a lot more value than have a debt. But what's really interesting is that when asset prices will you know, decline and there will at some point in time, all of this moves in cycles, then you have this problem because the debt is real, but the asset value is not. So you have an asset that is inflated and that might be cut in half. Now your debt is still the same outstanding. So what will you do? Well, you're probably forced to sell some of your assets, even incur a loss. And that would just drag down the whole system. So there was a lot of good reasons to be really careful uh, at the moment. And sorry for predicting too much, uh, Charlie. I'd, <laughs> that's not my You intention. witch doctor. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so we're going to be talking about kind of the topic that Stig's uh, referring to in a later episode, we're reading the book uh, by Richard Koo that I had mentioned in, in last week's episode uh, where he talks about these balance sheet recessions. And so that's one of the reasons that we're talking about that a little bit more. Uh, we're not going to be doing that book for probably a month. 
Uh, so we've got some time before we're actually going to be doing that because we have some other things that we're going to be doing in between that. But uh, just so you know, if you want to get a, a jump head and start reading that book, uh, we'll have that in the show notes as well for you. But uh, that's about all we have for you this week where we were talking about the Fed, talking about this money multiplier and how it adjusted. I highly encourage you to go to our show notes and look at these charts. Look at how these have adjusted and how they've gone in lockstep with this money multiplier over this uh, 75 to 100 year period and how that's actually controlling how everything is shaking out and how we're at the end of the cycle right now. And we don't really know how it's going to progress as we go into the next decade. So uh, really interesting discussion. It's really fun to talk about. And if you guys have any comments at all, please come to our Warren Buffett forum uh, that's warrenbuffettforum.com. The very top post in there is where we're having the ongoing discussion about this deleveraging, this this uh, long-term uh, debt cycle. And um, we're really looking for people to shoot holes through some of our analysis, um, just like Ray Dalio. You know, we're looking for those type of people to provide value to the community and to the group and to have this one big giant mastermind discussion of this topic. So uh, everyone out there that's been helping to educate us on this, we truly appreciate it. In fact, uh, I had an, a person email me just last night. His name is Anup Sasakumar, and he sent me an email for a four-part lecture of Ben Bernanke at George Washington University, uh, and it's very good. It's like four hours worth of information of Ben Bernanke. The The discussion happened back in 2012, so it was, it was basically Ben Bernanke uh, talking about all of his decisions during the 2008 crisis, but... Um, we want people to submit questions. We've actually been uh, not receiving a lot of uh, voice uh, recordings of questions lately. So please send in your questions at asktheinvestors.com. Uh, we'll play it on the air if you guys ask your question and uh, we'll send you a free signed copy of our book. So uh, go on there and, and submit your questions and we'll try to answer them on the air for you. All right. So that's all we have for you this week and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.